Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brever and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we are going to be discussing some under the radar NBA storylines in our eyes. Now we determine what the radar has picked up. A lot of this is just stuff that we haven't really sufficiently discussed in our eyes, some teams that we haven't touched on as much, maybe some storylines that have developed that we haven't really dove into. We're going to do that today. And we're going to start, Logan, by talking about the return of a guy who is a star-level player, but we really haven't discussed all that much as far as his play this season, and that is Pascal Siakam. We've seen him now for four games with the Raptors, obviously a team that has been consistently competitive throughout this year. So now that we are four games deep into Siakam's return, how do you feel about what you've seen from him? And how do you feel about just the overall standing of this Toronto team? Maybe this is a hot take. I kind of like Toronto more without Pascal Siakam. I'm not going to lie. And from what I've seen from Pascal directly this season... He certainly looks better than he did in Tampa last season, that's for sure. And I do think he's added some aspects to his game, Carson. He looks uh, more aggressive, more uh, he's better at like lowering his shoulder and getting to the rack. But it's not like it's not like this guy has a deeper bag offensively. Like he's still kind of doing the same thing. He's people call him Spicy P. Carson. I have a new nickname for him. I think we should call him the Cyclone. If he's not spinning off you in the post, he's not getting to the rack. If he's not lowering his shoulder, he's not getting to the rack. Like, that's kind of his only game. I don't like him as a catch-and-shooter. I don't like him in the mid-range. I'll give him props for shooting 38% from deep behind the arc right now. He's doing that at a decent rate. He's moving the ball in the wings all right. But to me, man, he doesn't really look super engaged right now. Uh He's taken some possessions off defensively. You see that time to time. Not like he was already a high-impact defender. I've been one of the biggest Pascal Siakam skeptics, especially off-ball, and that's late rotations. That's being situationally unaware. Um, Something I've really noticed in his return. Dude, he's a really bad pick-and-roll defender, too. He does not make high IQ switches out of there. Um, 
on ball, I'll give him his credit. He's a pretty strong, stout guy. Like, it's hard to just get him, uh, buy him off the dribble. But off ball and out of the pick and roll, I'm not a fan of him as a defender. He's not being super active on the glass. Like I said, man, I just kind of like this team better without that alpha there, without him to be a ball stopper, because I think you see that, that when he is initiating offense, the Raptors are not a free-flowing machine. When Fred Van Vliet creates offense, they are. And I like Pascal on offense when they use him out of the role, Carson. I think when you're having him set screens, when you're having him make decisions out of the short role, when he can spot guys, when he can just roll to the rack hard, and you simplify his role to that, I kind of like him. When you keep him off ball and use him as a guy who can attack closeouts, who can shoot some catch-and-shoot attempts and move balls, uh, move the ball to other shooters on the wing, I like him, but I never, I'm never going to like this guy initiating offense. Um, like, I don't know, man. Like, when he's asked to create his own bucket, he's still a very ugly basketball player. And I just think without him on the floor, the ball just didn't stop. This team played more aggressive. And, like, again, I don't want to solely attribute this losing streak. Uh, They've lost four games with Siakam. They did beat the Sixers, but they're without Embiid. And so I don't really think that matters all that much. I don't know, man. I'm not a big Siakam guy. I don't think he fits this timetable. There's a lot of other high-impact wings who could be getting minutes here. I have said this before. I said this before the season. I just think I think this team should just move off of him and open up the floor for Scotty, open up the floor for OG, open up the floor for Delano Banton. That's my guy who's been balling in the G League. I just, I'm not a big Siakam guy. I think they need, I need another high, uh, high-level high perimeter creator, and, uh, and I don't think he fits his timetable. And I like this team more without him. I'm not a Siakam guy, and I don't think I ever will be. Do you think I'm being too hard on him? Yeah, there's a couple things that I just don't fully understand. And look, I'm not a big Siakam guy either. I think that he can be tough to integrate in certain situations, and it's certainly not always the prettiest basketball. My biggest issue would be you are criticizing him for, in my opinion, basically doing what OG has done for this team, but better. Siakam is going to be an isolation bucket getter, just like OG has tried to be this year, but OG is going to settle for a lot of tough mid-range shots, which he hasn't hit a whole ton of. Siakam is going to be considerably more efficient. We've seen that as long as he's shooting well enough from beyond the arc, which presumably he will, and hopefully last year was an outlier. He's a significantly more developed playmaker. And then defensively, I know you love to harp on him, but I understand there was some regression last year. In their title run and in the following season, he was a clear all-defense level guy. And I thought he's had some outstanding moments. I mean, he's versatile. They can play him three through five easily. We saw him get significant center minutes against the Nets and crush it. And, I mean, he's a 6'9 athlete with a 7'3 wingspan. So if you're going to harp on his rotations over and over again, I just think it's a little overly critical. Like, he is clearly a plus on that end. If you want to debate the extent to which, that's fine. But if you don't think Pascal Siakam is an above-average NBA defender... I don't know what to say. Like, that's, you got the blinders on, man. That's just Logan Camden hating Pascal Siakam for a hilarious reason that I can't fully understand. This guy is the most overrated defender in the NBA, Carson. I don't know how you can say that. He can't read a pick and roll. He can't make decisions defending the pick and roll. He is slow rotating. Like, sure, man, I'll give him all the physical intangibles. And like I said, I'll give him credit for being a great on-ball defender because you're not going to drive on the guy. You're not going to get past him. He's going to make life hell on-ball. But off-ball, he is not an all-defense caliber guy. You have always... Dude, I think he is overrated as hell on the defensive end. 
I'm not saying that he was an all-defense caliber guy last year because I think there was regression, and we haven't seen enough this year. But he has played at an all-defense level before. And regardless, I just think he is their most skilled one-on-one wing bucket getter. I mean, you can consider him a four. That's really what he is, but he initiates from the perimeter primarily. And, like, can you just explain the difference to me between him and OG in your eyes? Like, is it just that OG's younger? Because OG's not as good as Siakam, dude. Like, I get that maybe it's prettier, and sure, he's not going to hit a spin move every time, but he's just not as good. No, I mean, and I'm not even talking about just skill set-wise and isolation. I just think OG is a more, he's a better stylistical fit that you can just fit him into any system. He's not a ball stopper like Siakam. Like, he is, though. If he's getting buckets... He is. Like I said, I mean, he's taken a ton of tough mid-range jumpers this year, and he hasn't hit a bunch of them. Like, attacking closeouts, the dude is a bully. He can get to the bucket. He is a pretty good catch-and-shooter, but he has been a volume offensive creator. In this role, he's taking 18 shots a game. He's taking more shots a game than Fred Van Vliet. So he has been trying to fill in that production for Siakam, and he's just not as good at it. And I do want to touch on... A part of this losing streak as well, this losing portion of this season, can be attributed to some pretty poor perimeter shooting from the Raptors. Gary Trent and OG are below 35% right now uh, over the last five games. So I do think that does warrant worth mentioning. But it's just like, I don't know, man. Do you think that... I just think this offense flowed better with him off the floor. I think there was more ball movement. There was more guys getting touches. And maybe it wasn't the most efficient offense. Because again, you're right. Uh, Pascal has been exceptionally... Uh, efficient with his touches. 17 on 50, 38 splits is exceptional for Pascal. But it's like, so even if I am giving him credit on that end, it's like, what is the end game for this season, Carson? A play-in? I just think it's kind of stupid that I think Pascal can work somewhere as a third guy. I just don't like him as your second best isolation guy because I still like Freddie late in games getting buckets. But Pascal's still better because he's just stronger. He can get into the lane better. Freddie's kind of a you know a minus in that end. Pascal in another situation I might like a little more. But just here it doesn't make sense to me because there's no end game. He's a 27-year-old toiling away on a team that's not going to be contending anytime soon. So go out, get some value. Let your other young wings that you clearly want to develop get some burn. Suck this year. And let him go play for a contender. I think that's all completely fair. I mean, if your critique is long-term, he doesn't make sense. I agree. I mean, the Raptors have a weird timetable going here where they have this mix of holdovers from the title team and young assets who they've acquired, and they're mostly a young team, but I mean, Van Vliet is 27 as well. So I don't disagree with that point. What is the sticking point for me is when you say, oh, he's this significant detriment or they're better without him because I just don't see that on the basketball court. I agree he's weird and sometimes he demands the ball a lot and it's not super pretty and he had a brutal season last year. All of that is fair but I just think he is clearly one of the top two players on their roster when healthy and I don't want to act like there's been some beautiful flow to this offense to begin with because it's always been janky. I mean Scotty is janky getting his buckets. Gary Trent Jr. will not pass the ball if there are six dudes on him. Like if one of his teammates comes over and helps he's not passing that ball. So it's really just Fred who has been this conductor who has been phenomenal by the way. I mean unreal pull up jump shooting this year better than 40% from deep. Really nice bounce back for him after sort of a disappointing year last season, and he's playing a massive load minutes-wise. 
I love the depth here. I mean, there's a lot to like about this team. And by the way, they have been productive offensively. They're a top 10 offense by offensive rating. And that's kind of surprising to me. I mean, there are things they do well. They have the highest percentage of transition offense. That makes sense. They have these long athletes. Their overall pace isn't crazy high, but they do take some of those opportunities to attack. So there are a lot of guys who I like here. And I mean, we've seen them do this without playing Goran Dragic because they've decided that he just doesn't fit their timetable. But I don't want to say that it's been this beautiful machine and Osiakam has come in and ruined it. Do I think he makes a significant difference for them? Not really, because I do think his skill set can be a little bit redundant, but I do think he still does his job well. And that's just kind of the fact of the matter, in my opinion. What about the Raptors broadly? Because... You can talk about not thinking that Siakam really helps them, but where do they stand sort of regardless of that in your eyes? You mean like across the league? Um, I I mean, I definitely think they're in play in contention. Like there have been, with Siakam, and again, that's why I don't want to fully put the blame. I I can't because Siakam's been too efficient, but Gary Trent's been shooting cold. OG has been shooting cold. Chiwa has been ass from the field. I think he's at like, I mean, what, dude, like 35%? 38.8, I believe. It's been really rough. I love a lot of what Precious does, but it's been rough watching him try to score the basketball. You know what? To your point, over these last five games with Siakam back, they've been horrendous defensively. I believe the worst defensive rating in basketball, top five offense. So maybe that point doesn't completely stick. I'll give them their credit where it's due. But I don't know, man. Like you said, there's a lot of talent here. There's a lot of depth here. And maybe... Maybe I just need to let this thing breathe a little more. Maybe I need to let it give a little more time, let these pieces all gel together. Because as you did mention, there is a lot of new pieces in here, and there's a lot of depth that I do like because I touch on a guy like, uh, I'm going to say his name just because I think this kid's phenomenal. I really do like Delano Banton on this bench. I think this kid is special, Carson. I think his floor is a really, really talented bench player, a really, really good six-man that can run your unit. But I think his ceiling is a flat-out star, dude. I mean, he's a high-level smart cutter. Like, he is aware off-ball. He is crafty as hell in the lane. Like, and, like, that's something that I really think special, man, is he's, like, a dynamic... He's dynamic in the lane. And what I mean by that is he's not just trying to get to the rack. Like, he's going to use a little bit of a post game to get those little tough mid-range jumpers off, uh, those post jumpers off. And he's tall enough to where they're not bad shots because he's 6'9". That handle is filthy for a guy who's 6'9". He is a forceful, aware passer like OG Cutting, Gary Trent Cutting. Like, if you were cutting, Delano is going to spot you. He's going to make plays. He's an aggressive, strong on-ball defender. And I think, I mean, really, like, I don't think there's any holes in this game right now except for his shot. If that shot comes along, you're looking at a star. Um, he just dropped 39-7 and seven in the G League the other day. I don't know why they sent him down because he was playing really productive minutes um, for them off the bench. And then as for the rest of this team, man, I like Scotty a lot. Scotty is tremendous, and I think, dude, and that's why I touch on just giving these guys minutes, man, because they're all so young, Carson. Like, think about a lineup like this, dude. You're starting... Like Freddie, Gary Trent, Delano Banton, Scotty Barnes, and then Precious Achiwa. Maybe Freddie isn't the answer long term either, just because he is also a little older. But like, man, that is a long, switchable, versatile lineup. And I really like their future. I still don't think that they are a play in team for me. I think there's a chance. Again, these pieces are just going to have to mend a little bit together. They're going to have to get a lot better defensively and maybe find another impact big man because I just don't know about Kim Birch and Boucher off the bench right now anchoring your defense. 
there's a route for them in the play-in. I'm not going to bet on it, but there's a lot of young pieces that I really do like here. I don't know, man. You've talked me off the ledge a little bit on the Raptors. I think I'm going to give it a little time to breathe, but I'm still not betting on them to make a play-in appearance. Are you? It's tough, dude. Like, they are a play-in caliber team. I think that that is fair to say. Now, there's only 10 spots right now. I'm not sure if I would give one to them, but my thinking is kind of maybe they don't sustain this level offensively, but defensively, they're 19th in defensive rating. I agree with you. The big man situation is not optimal right now, but at the same time, they have competent options, and I just think that they should progress there. I don't think they're a play-in team just because it's like, I mean, right now, they have the 10 seed, and still behind them are the Bucks. Well, obviously, they're going to surpass them. The Hawks, I think, are still a more talented roster, although they have underachieved. The Pacers even make an argument. And above them, it's not like there are any teams where I'm like, wow, the Raptors are clearly better. So it's just that kind of landscape right now. But yes, I think that they have a path. And shout out to Lano Banton, dude. I'm really surprised that we haven't done a full segment on him yet here at Nerdsesh because... You talk about a diamond in the rough, dude. For a 46th overall pick, he is outstanding. And you talk about the star ceiling, like, yeah, there's a long way to go, but you can't write it off. It's also worth noting he is 22. I mean, this is a guy who played an extended college career, a couple different programs, but he's effectively a 6'9 guard. I mean, they can list him as a small forward. That's fine. He's a ball handler. He has exceptional change in pace. He is a good athlete. Like you said, he does come in and just bring energy and impact the game defensively. I love him. And I think that he is just another tremendous find in a long list of tremendous finds by the Toronto Raptors, man. It's just remarkable what they do year in and year out, drafting dudes, developing dudes. Really, really impressive. But... At the end of the day, I think you're right about the long-term point here. I mean, I don't think Siakam makes a whole lot of sense in Toronto, but at the same time, it's like you still have Van Vliet. You're not going to be able to scrap all of this. Like, even OG, you could argue, is a little bit weird for this timetable. So what do you do? I just think that you're going to be competitive. You're going to live with that. And then after this year, you'll probably have to look in the mirror and think, what do we do going forward? And if a great offer comes through for Siakam this season, hey, I wouldn't turn it down. But I don't know if that's going to happen, and I don't think that they necessarily need to force that. But clearly, there is an emphasis on developing their young guys here. I mean, like I said, Goran Dragic is just sitting on their bench, not playing healthy pretty consistently, and that kind of tells you a lot about where they're at as a franchise. But good for that, man. Another fun young team. Now, this is the Under the Radar Storylines episode. This one is kind of just under the nerd sesh radar. Okay, so give us a little bit of... A little bit of room to be creative here because we just really want to talk about this. Logan, obviously the Knicks came out really strong and through a handful of games, we were saying they're a top five team out east. They're a fringe contender. Then there was some slippage. Now they're sitting at eight and six. So uh, this may have been sufficiently discussed elsewhere, but I will just ask you, are the Knicks just not as good as we thought in that early stage of the season? Yeah, I, I I don't think they are. Um, I, I don't think they're in like the because I mean we were quick to put them in the Bulls Heat tier kind of kind of teams, and I, I'm questioning whether they're just in that tier below. But like it's just been a cold stretch for a lot of these guys, man. Now 
Kemba is a guy I wonder if this is going to last long term just because the injury concerns, the... I mean, dude, what is... Like, I, I wrote these down, man. At last eight games, it's been a rough stretch for the Knicks. Uh, three and five over these last eight. Kemba's putting up 11, two, and three on 40, 26 splits. And again, for a guy who is effectively... Like, yeah, Kemba's used on ball a little bit, but nowhere near as much as he has been. Like, Kemba just needs to knock down these catch-and-shoot attempts, and it's something that we have discussed, Carson, that if he was just knocking down his threes, he'd be a valuable asset here. This can't keep happening. And I don't want to put all this on him because, like I said, it has been a cold streak for everybody here. R.J. Barrett is giving you 14-6-2 on 36-32 splits. Fournier, 9-3-2 on 38-23 splits. There's been a lot of bad shooting and for a team who has had a defensive identity that we thought was going to continue, you can't have this. You cannot be this poor offensively and expect to continue when you are significantly regressing defensively. On the season, they're 17th in defensive rating. These last eight games, they're 17th. Now, I do wonder, Nerlens Noel has been out. I do wonder when he comes back to full health if that changes. Like, you know, you're giving a lot of minutes to other guys like Taj Gibson to help anchor your five. I don't love that. I, you know, I don't think anybody does. So I wonder when Nerlens gets back fully healthy if that changes. But no, I don't think they are, Carson, because you're, if they are, which I expect basically offensive consistency out of one guy, and that is Julius Randle. Julius has regressed shooting-wise, too. Like, I don't know, man. You're putting a lot in faith in Julius and RJ continuing to shoot really hot. You're asking Kemba to get back up near a star level to really maximize them out. I just don't see it. I don't see the, any of these guys getting back up to carrying them at a star level. I trust Julius Randle to get his isolation buckets and to help facilitate this offense. And I expect him to knock down a moderate level of their catch-and-shoot attempts, but I don't think there's a ceiling like the Bulls have, like the Heat have. They're just, not, they're just not as reliable. And again, I don't think this is a bad defense. I think that if we do see Nerlens Noel return at a point in the season, maybe they get better. But if this is not a top-five unit defensively in basketball, this is not an elite team. And uh, so that's my take. So I actually think that they pretty much are at least close to as good as our early evaluation was. And the reason for that is actually kind of separate from all the things that you criticize there. I think that what we have seen consistently is that this is one of the single best benches that I can recall seeing in my entire lifetime. Like, we knew that this death was going to be great. That's actually why I took them over the Bulls just barely. We did our contender rankings. I had them fourth in the East and the Bulls fifth. This was after a handful of games because I was like, the Bulls with Patrick Williams going down. I just think when you can go 10 deep with really good guys like the Knicks can... That's kind of a difference maker. And you look at the on-off splits, dude. I mean, they are 34 points per 100 better when D. Rose plays. 13 points per 100 better with Burks. 24 points better with Quickly. 25 points better with Obi. 14 and a half better with Taj. 25 better with Nerlens. I mean, it is consistently. They have so much more success when those guys are on the floor. All of those guys are going to bring you value in their respective ways, whether it's being that high-level initiator, bucket getter, D. Rose. Obi's going to bring that transition dynamism. Has just been a good, efficient option on offense. Burke's bucket getter, IQ, a perimeter shot maker. And then you have the sort of defensive intensity from Taj, from Nerlens, like you said, when he is out there consistently healthy. And that is really significant, dude, because what we have seen is... I would say almost an inexplicably brutal stretch from their top guys. Like, 
I just don't think you can look at that and say, okay, that's going to be sustained. What we have seen is, well, they have this great bench. They're still a top five three-point shooting team by volume and efficiency, and you just need more out of your top guys. And I actually think you talk about Julius Randle and them needing him to be consistent. Absolutely. I also think that even if the other guys haven't been super consistent, productive, high volume options, Fournier, RJ, Kemba, and all that, I still like how Randall is being utilized more this year. I mean, there's a lot of him still being tough bucket getting, point forward, all those things, but there's more of a mixture. They are having him be a screener more. There are more pick and roll ball handlers who they can trust to say, hey, go get into the lane, make something happy, make something happen. Julius, you know, fade to the three point line, roll to the bucket have a tough finish. And he can do that really well. To me, his struggles are pretty simple. He's shooting 26% for mid-range. Like, that is a foundation of his game. That is what he does. Now, he can do these other things, like I said, but he has to be a tough mid-range bucket getter. And if he was shooting just at the clip he did for mid-range last year, he would be shooting 45% from the field right now. And you'd be fine with that. I mean, you'd want to see him a little better, a little better from deep. But right now, he's barely shooting 41%. So he's not going to stop taking those shots. Like, if last year was a fluke as far as his mid-range jump shooting, well, guess what? Julius Randle is not the same player because that's a foundation of his game. I just have to believe they're going to start to fall more regularly. He can create them very consistently. And we saw him hit them. Like, it's not always super efficient, but it's something he needs to do, and it's something he's going to continue to do. And then... RJ just hasn't been shooting very well. Like, RJ's never been a prolific, versatile, brilliant bucket getter inside the arc. It's been knockdown shots, attack closeouts. And when he was a 40-something percent shooter from deep, it was like, wow, here's a great player. If he's sub 35%, that's not great. Do I think he will get better? I do. And then Kemba, yeah, has been underwhelming. I agree with you. It's sort of weird how he's utilized... I thought he was going to score closer to 20 a game. I thought he'd be more dynamic, Fournier. But at the end of the day, I just trust those guys to produce. And part of that is just balance. Like, it's not that they're playing horribly. It's that so many different guys need touches, and I think that's okay. And I think that's good in the scheme of things because last year, this was a one-man operation. And so I just feel like there has to be progress there. Like, guys are just playing uncharacteristically bad basketball, but the depth is real. And then defensively, I don't think this regression is fully legitimate. I do not think they are going to be number 17 in defensive rating going forward. Are they going to be a top five defense like last year? They may not be. Kemba definitely has some issues on that end. I mean, he's letting people shoot 51% when he's the primary defender. Obviously, he's just physically limited. At the same time, he still tries. Like, I don't feel like engagement is a major issue. And guess what? We've seen Kemba be a part of some great defenses in Boston, for example, just by competing and having really good personnel alongside him. The issue for a lot of the season for this Knicks team has been that they're allowing the most threes per game in the NBA. That to me kind of feels like an early season, hey, let's figure out the sharpness of our rotations, let's figure out when it's appropriate to help in these spots, and let's just get our defensive chemistry together. Because I don't question, obviously, the coaching here, I don't question the culture, I don't question the effort, that's just kind of a discipline thing. And personnel-wise, they have a high-level point of attack defender in R.J. Barrett, who you can throw at those lead guards. They have a high-level wing defender in Julius Randle, who you can put on those elite scoring wings. And they have really good rim protection with Mitchell Robinson and Nerlens. So I just look up and down and I think 
their issues are that their best players aren't making shots, kind of. And with the level of balance and depth and two-way potential they have, I still think this should be a fringe top 10 unit on both ends at the least, and that is a top five or six team in the Eastern Conference. So I just think it has to get better from here. I understand the disappointment after such an exciting start, but I also think things are going to get better again. This Knicks team can absolutely win a playoff series, and I think they're going to be really good. So you don't think that we're seeing any kind of permanent regression in Fournier or Kemba whatsoever? Permanent regression in what sense? I mean, they haven't been super heavily utilized as like star-level offensive players, but it's not like they're just clanking shots. I mean, Kemba's shooting 40% from deep, right? Fournier is around 36%. I think that number will go up. They've had some nice pick-and-roll possessions. To me, it's just not the volume. Like, they don't have enough looks to score 20 points a game. And maybe you can say, okay, use Randall even more as a screener. Give those guys even more possessions. Maybe that'll be beneficial because maybe, hey, if Julius is going to try to get these tough buckets and miss them, that's a problem if that continues. But I don't look at that and think, oh, it's disastrous even though those guys are scoring like 13 a game. Because also, I mean, they still play at one of the slowest paces in the league. They play their benches, obviously, a lot. So I just feel like there's a lot of factors that play into that. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think you make a really good point, especially giving credit to D. Rose and Emmanuel Quickly. They've been keeping this thing afloat uh, while these guys have been shooting horrendously. I believe D. Rose is like over 45% of these last eight games from deep, Quickly over 47%. Those guys are just... They're as reliable as it gets in filling it up for these bench units. So are they in? Are they still in the tier for you of Miami, of Chicago, of those second teams out east? So I never had them in a tier with Miami. I thought I had a tier of a top three, and then I had a tier of them and the Bulls. I think they are in that tier probably with, I think, the healthy Sixers. Those are the top six teams out east. And... They belong somewhere on the back end of that conversation. I think the Bulls are probably a slightly stronger option long-term right now. I mean, obviously the offense for them just feels like it's more reliable. But at the same time, the Knicks have this shooting. They have the depth. They have the multiple creators. We just got to see their stars perform. So I want to see more because I feel like we saw a great start that maybe was even a little bit too perfect offensively. And then we saw some regression, but I mean, they're still a top 10 offense overall in the year. Like it's been the defense. And again, I do think they will get back to being at least a fringe top 10 level unit there. And then that's a pretty good two-way ceiling. It's not a championship ceiling. I didn't think coming into the year that they had a championship ceiling. And I was still hesitant to say that they did a handful of games into the year or whatever. That all feels fair to me, but I am confident they're going to be really good. I mean, I think that they are certainly better than whatever other teams you would lump into that next tier. I don't know, Atlanta or Boston maybe, or Charlotte like, or even the Wizards. I certainly think the Knicks should be much better than. So I still feel pretty good about this team, and I think it's going to be a fun season for Knicks and Knicks fans. And I just feel like their depth really is a difference-making aspect in a way that it isn't for many teams. Like, I'm trying to think about who compares. We've seen some great... Pacers benches. We saw obviously the Raptors bench mob in 2017-18, but this is a really exceptional unit and it might be better than any of those. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, you even look at these other top level teams out East, the Bulls don't have creators this caliber. Like 
I'm not saying that I think this is more likely to happen, but if Levine and DeRozan go cold for a stretch from mid-range, obviously they have the wealth of having those top two. They don't have creators like that off the bench. The uh, the Sixers don't have creators like that off the bench. Like That's why the Knicks have at least been competent during this stretch, even though all of these guys have been cold. Do you think they're the best bench in the league? Outside of... Even better than Utah. They go deeper than Utah. Mm-hmm. Like... Look, it can be tough to beat Utah's top guys, although Jordan Clarkson has obviously had a brutal year. But I read off six names of bench players to you when I was giving those on off splits, and I very much trust every one of those guys to fill their roles. So yes, and maybe they're not going to go 11 deep in the playoffs, but I genuinely think they can go 10 deep and play any of those guys 20 minutes on any night. Do you like it better than Golden State's bench? Yes. I think that the Warriors bench is clearly lacking the same kind of creation that this bench has. I mean, the Warriors have smart, versatile guys you can flex in who will play high-level defense, who will make shots on the wings that are created for them. But we still see that that Warriors team needs Jordan Poole to sort of manage things with that unit at times. And there's a nice synergy there, but I don't think there's the same talent and the same bucket-getting potential and all that. So... I think the Knicks are going to be all right. All right? Bing bong, as they say, which has faded a little bit now that they went on this cold streak, but it'll come back. It'll come back. All right. Now, that was probably the least under-the-radar storyline we're going to touch on today. We're going to hard pivot from that to the Oklahoma City Thunder, Logan. A little more under-the-radar for you all. Look, they're sitting at 5-8 right now. They have found a way to be kind of competitive at the very least. I mean, I think it's fair to say even more than that. They've got five wins, and, you know, they're doing better than the other tanking teams out west sitting in the 11 seed. So what's gotten into these guys? I mean, what should we make of the fact that they are sitting there right now and aren't basically the worst team in basketball like we would have expected? You shouldn't make anything of it. I mean, yeah, they try. Like, the Thunder play really hard. And so I want to give them uh, some, some really nice credit for that because this team... They play really hard. And you can just see, like, in the final possessions, because a lot of these games have come down to the wire, um, a lot of their wins here. Like, against the Kings, effort wins them that game. Lou Dort getting that steal and going on the fast break and getting them that layup wins them that game. Um, Going down the stretch, some tough bucket uh, getting from, funnily enough, Lou Dort. Uh, You know, Josh Giddy kicks him the rock on that that slide. Lou Dort gets an easy bucket. Shea helps close out that game really well. And... I guess am I just giving Lou Dort all this credit? Lou Dort gets up into Jonte Murray, or no, it wasn't Jonte. It was Lonnie Walker. Lonnie Walker misses that late three that could have tied the game against San Antonio, and they end up pulling it out. Like the team just plays tough, man. Um, not only that game, the Lakers they just eke that out. I know this is kind of a while back now, about um a couple weeks back now, but still, also Russell Westbrook deserves a lot of credit for gift- gifting them that game, a late turnover, a couple bad shots late in that game, help closing it out. But man, this effort has just led them to being one of the best defensive teams uh, over this run. Now, they're seventh in defensive rating over the last six. <sighs> Offense sucks, though, dude. I, I hate watching it. I-, I genuinely do. Like, there's a couple things that I like. Obviously, I like Shea Gilgis Alexander out of the pick and roll in isolation. The dude is just nasty, getting into the lane, getting his own buckets. And Josh Giddy is a whole lot of fun watching him facilitate an offense and pass. Kid cannot shoot, cannot score. That's not fun, but he is a transcendent passer. 
And then, like, who do I mention next, bruh? Because I don't want to talk about Lou Dort's offensive game. That dude sucks, bruh. Like, people will look at it, man. They saw that 40... We talked about this before, but... You see that 40-point game last year. Oh, my God, man. Lou Dort needs the opportunity. Give him the touches. Look, if Lou Dort's three is falling, he's a decently valuable asset. But it's like... That guy just has one gear. And it's... I'm going to try to push you to the rack. I am going to try to just outmuscle you there. And if that doesn't work, well... I got nothing else. He's not an exceptionally fun player to watch. I don't know, man. It's it's all effort, and they're kind of just beating up on bad teams. Beat the Spurs, beat the Pelicans, beat the Kings, beat the LeBronless Lakers. And then they lose to actually good teams by 30, or excuse me, they lose to the Nets by nearly 30, and then the uh, Heat by 13. I don't know, man. I don't think we should make anything of it other than these guys are really trying. They're really gritty. You've got a lot of gritty guys who are, who are just giving a lot of effort. And uh, that's that. Offense sucks, though. Not fun at all. Yeah, I have to agree with basically everything that you said there. Also, there's a bit of a carpentry convention going on outside of our apartment right now. Hopefully, you guys can't hear that. Some unexpected drilling right there. But, yeah, you're completely right. I mean... What has gotten into this team is that they have found it within themselves to really try to be competitive. They scrap. They have been a top-half defense on this year. And, I mean, they're young, of course. You expect young teams to struggle defensively. But given that they are committed, they have long, athletic dudes. Like Lou Dort, obviously, all-defense caliber, 6'8 wingspan. SGA, 6'11 wingspan. Baisley, 7-foot wingspan. Jeremiah Robinson-Earl, who's been playing a lot. Only a 6'10 wingspan, but very unique defensive big in that he's so switchable, good feet, always engaged, just a smart, competitive guy. So, like, there's a lot of long arms. There's a lot of good athletes. There's versatility, switchability there. So, for that reason, I mean, I do have respect for what they do defensively, certainly. But like you said, I mean, they've beaten up on other bad teams. Their offense is disgusting. Overall in the year, they have an offensive rating of 98.8. Their shooting is atrocious, they're 29th in three-point percentage, and it's just impossible to watch, dude. Like, you said it, Giddy is so far away as a scorer. I mean, he's putting up nine a game on 37% from the field and 26% from three, and I like his change in pace, but it's just not easy for him to get all the way downhill. He's relying on the floater, and the jump shot is just not there. Baisley possessions actually make me want to gouge my eyes out. I don't know how many more years we need to see of this dude trying to be an isolation bucket getter and shooting 30% from deep before we just say, hey, maybe let's move on from this. Lou Dort, like you said, I mean, he can get downhill, but he shoots 28% from deep. It's just like, if it's not SGA, it's disgusting. And guys don't knock down shots around him. They don't have dynamic role men. I don't know. Moses Brown maybe could have added an interesting dimension here. I just don't like where they're at, dude. Like, props to them for playing hard. Props to Mark Dagnalt for getting them to play hard. But I don't know how long you can do this for when you're just this bad. And by the way, out of all the dudes who actually play for them, Logan, only one guy has an on-off differential of better than plus five. Ty Jerome. They're 21 points per 100 possessions better when he plays. Small sample size. He actually hasn't been great this year, but I do still think he's actually one of their most valuable players, and I think he should play more, but they just don't care. They're like a farm system, and they've found a way to make their guys competitive defensively, which is great, but it really sucks to watch them play basketball. I don't know how else to put it. I love Jeremiah Robinson Earl. SGA, obviously, I have to have a lot of respect for, but outside of that, it's not pretty. 
No, and you bring up a really interesting factor with Moses Brown because it's kind of been we're getting Derek Favors at the five. We're getting a lot of Mike Muscala minutes. It's kind of weird. Um, I really did like Moses here just because of how young he was, how good of a role man he was, how good of a straight-up rim protector he was. And, like, again, I have my individual issues with Moses. He's not the most switchable guy, and he had a tendency to just let guys get mid-range shots off. But he fit the timetable for this team. And, again, he's a guy you can just feed into the paint. You can feed dribblers right in there, and he's going to send shots away. I would have really liked to see him. He also gives Shea a just any reliable role man, which they desperately also need here. There are just no... There are no offensive pluses outside of Ty Jerome down this entire roster for, you know, to play off ball to SGA. And on your carpentry point, on your carpentry point Carson, I, I do want to apologize to our listeners and viewers on YouTube. I take a glance out my door. They are literally changing the locks on the apartment across the, uh, across the hall from us. So uh, perfectly timed podcast. Wonderful. Yeah, here's a stat that tells you a little bit about how brutal things have been for SGA. He's averaging 11.2 potential assists per game, okay? That's more than Steph Curry, for example, who averages 6.6 assists per game, and yet SGA is averaging 4.2 assists a night. Why? Because dudes around him don't make shots, and it's just a really tough burden for him, and his raw production is down from last year. His efficiency is down. He's still a great player. He's a shining star in a miserable situation, but I just don't know what their long-term plans are for him, and I just feel bad for the guy because, like, he came from a competitive Clippers situation and then was on a really good Thunder team, and now these last two years it's just been like, oh, we actually don't care about winning basketball games even one iota. So, yeah, good for the Thunder. They're competitive right now. I still think they're going to win, like, 20 games. So because them being average defensively is an accomplishment, but it's not enough to make up for what is probably the worst or a bottom two, three offense in basketball. Like, it's really, really bad. They are the least talented offensive team in basketball, no question, in my opinion. Let's talk about another team. It really sucks, Logan, because that's what we're doing here today. The Houston Rockets have been just a little bit worse than the Thunder, even 1-13. They've lost 12 straight I was kind of excited about the Rockets. I thought they were going to be like a 30-win team. I liked a lot of their individual pieces, and uh, they have been atrocious. I mean, they are pretty much unwatchable right now. So I will ask you, why are they so awful? I mean, you play at the number one pace in basketball, and you clang a lot of shots. That's no recipe for success. When you play at that fast of a pace at the Rockets do, when they are just getting up and down the floor, hucking up shots like they're the 05 Suns, you got to produce. And nothing comes easy to this offense. Like, nothing at all. Um, the inexperience kind of shines through. There's a lot of inexperience you can see with KPJ trying to run an offense. Like, he just gets himself into a lot of trouble. He's not like... I don't know, man. Like, out of the pick and roll, it's not like he's creating and generating a whole lot of shots. And the biggest thing, man, is there's just no sort of flow. And what I mean by that is... I get glimpses, dude. I get glimpses sometimes when they move the ball around the wings. And I'm like, man, this thing's looking nice. And then Jalen Green will miss a three. And I get frustrated. But so many of these guys, and I think... And by so many of these guys, I guess I just mean Jalen Green and KPJ. They're all looking for their own shot. Like, uh, this is another team that I feel could really benefit from a Rubio type or just someone to help just move the ball to open people because anytime KPJ and Jalen Green are touching the ball, it just feels like 
Uh-oh. Wait. Oh, we're going to get a shot attempt. We're going to get a shot attempt. And, yeah, I mean, it's obvious. Like, they're the best two isolation creators on this team. But, I mean, bruh, KPJ is shooting 36-31 on 13 points per game right now. Jalen Green is shooting 36-27 on 14 points a night right now. Like, it is not efficient whatsoever. I don't know, man. Like, there needs to be... I just wish I could stylistically change how these guys play. I just wish I could get them to pass the ball and trust their other teammates to make their decisions because it's just not efficient, man. When they get into the pick and roll, when they get into the mid-range and put up a shot, it's like, yeah, it's open, but you guys aren't hitting it a high enough clip to justify it. it. There's no consistent offense whatsoever here, and Green and KPJ turn to isolation so much. And guess what, man? Defense is key in on that. In the Warriors game, Jesus Christ. How many turnovers, how many balls are going to get poked loose from you guys getting trapped on the baseline, from you guys getting trapped up near the wing? It's just ugly, dude. There's a lot of inexperience. There's no flow to this offense. There's no ball movement whatsoever, and it's rough. Free Christian Wood, dude. Can we get that guy out of town? I know he's your guy, man, But and that's another issue I have with this team. Your best offensive player is only out shooting KPJ and Jalen Green by one shot a night. Like, that cannot happen. Christian Wood was a fringe all-star last year, and these guys are just taking the ball out of his hands. Like, you can look at Wood's numbers by themselves, like 17-11 on 45-33. It may not be overwhelming. Wood needs more shot attempts because he's so clearly the best player on this team, and he's not getting them because KPJ and Jalen Green want to go ISO mode. This is a really young team, man. I still believe in a lot of the young talent here. But there's a few things that are true. Wood needs more shot attempts, and I think the KPJ experiment's done. He's not a point guard, right? Like, I think we can kind of write that off. You said that before the season. I think this is kind of fully confirmed it. Yeah, it feels like an AAU team, I guess. I mean, I think that you put it well in a lot of ways, and I think that one of my biggest issues in overestimating this team was, first of all, maybe I let my love of Jay Sean Tate get in the way because... I mean, I just love that guy. I don't know. For some reason, I thought that this team was just going to play smarter basketball, I guess. And I thought, hey, defensively, they can be competitive and they have some really talented guys. And I think kind of fundamentally, I just put too much faith in KPJ. Like, I thought last year, okay, he's going to project probably as more of like a great sixth man. But then I thought, hey... He's going to have a chance to really run the show this year, and we'll see. He's had great moments as a facilitator. Like, is he a primary ball handler kind of guy, or is he kind of a great bench guy? And that's what I expected him to sort of tell us this year. And uh, it's just been brutal. And what I think is part of the deception is last year, KBJ had his great moments, but it's not like he was always super consistent at all. He was not very efficient, but I was like, hey, it looks good. I mean, he's a natural shot creator, right? Like he can get that step back off whenever he's kind of just got a bag and he has some great moments as a passer. But the problem is the game looking good does not turn into results because he just like doesn't finish enough shots. Simply put, he shoots 45% in the paint. Not a great finisher. Those step backs look good. He's five of 20 on them from deep. He's sub 31% from deep overall. And as a primary ball handler, like, there are some times where he makes advanced reads as a passer, but also too many of his passes are off target. Like, his turnovers are a major problem. He averages 4.2 a game. So I still think that 
He can play better. He absolutely should play better. But I had to place a lot of faith in him as kind of the orchestrator, kind of, okay, KPJ, you need to be the point guard. And he's not. He's just a guy who has the ball in his hands a lot and is missing a lot of shots and has his moments, but it's just not nearly enough. Jalen Green, I thought, could score like 18 a game immediately. I wouldn't be surprised if he did that the back half of this year. We'll talk about him a little bit more in a second. But he's just clearly not ready to do that yet. And like you said, I mean, it's just overwhelming isolation, one-on-one, me, me, me. And then Christian Wood is not a kind of guy who's going to overwhelm the game. I mean, he's not a force-feed-him-touches kind of guy. He's not a brilliant post player. He's a dude who dominates within the flow of an offense, rolling to the bucket, catch-and-shoot threes, attacking closeouts, cleaning up the offensive glass. That's how he thrives. So if you have ball handlers who aren't going to get him the rock, there's nothing he can do about that. I mean, he's not Jokic. He's not Embiid. He's not Cat. He's the next level of great offensive bigs, but not like transcendent superstars. So he hasn't had sufficient opportunity, like you said, and he still hasn't played up to expectations. I mean, he hasn't shot the ball well enough. It's just like nothing is good. Eric Gordon is another guy who is one-on-one. Like, it's just rough, dude. And then I love Jay Sean, but like he's just another spotty shooter on the wings here. They're 32% from deep as a team. Probably should have seen that coming as more of an issue. So it's brutal, dude. Like nothing really complements each other here and uh, and there's just not much to like right now I think it could be a lot better though like talk a lot about KPJ man like I think a lot of the Rockets offensive issues could just be relieved if KPJ and Jalen Green were just not as selfish and I know that's that's kind of what they were brought in here to do like this is kind of what I think Houston wants them to do long term you know what I mean like the high-end levels of these guys are premier shot creators, like some of the best in the league. Again, you talk about how easy KPJ's game comes in shot creation off the dribble. It's smooth, as it is for Jalen Green. But there is there's a selfishness here, man. And you talk about guys needing other people to create shots for them. That could happen here because I still love Eric Gordon off ball. I love Christian Wood off ball. I love Kenyon Martin Jr. off the roll. I still like Daniel House and Jay Sean Tate off ball, even though they are not shooting well from deep right now. The biggest reason there's no flow to this offense is because they don't want to share the ball. Like, I think the biggest thing, it just lies on KPJ, man. And again, I'm not saying that there's a higher ceiling for this team. I think this is, yeah, the worst team in basketball because of how young and inexperienced they are and their lack of talent outside of these two really inefficient shot creators. But a lot of their issues could be remedied if we just saw less selfishness, man, if we just saw more ball movement. And I think a lot of these guys would be more engaged on the defensive end if they if they just played more cohesive. Like, I don't know, man. It's ugly basketball. It's not fun to watch. Well, I mean, I do think that they're a lot more talented than a team like the Thunder. It's just not complimentary basketball. And, I mean, I feel like they have guys who are winning basketball players. Jay Sean Tate. I think that K.J. Martin has his moments of versatile impact there. Like, I got excited about those dudes last year, as did you. But if they're in a situation where that's not incentivized, then you just don't get that value. So, it's tough, dude. I still think that Christian Wood is amazing. I mean, I would do anything for that, man. I was the first person driving the Christian Wood train way back when, like when he started getting going in Detroit. And I think Jalen Green can really be special, 
but there just isn't direction right now. And clearly this team is not trying to win games and is not equipped to win games in the kind of way that I expected them to. And KPJ, I just think, needs to be a sixth man somewhere. Because you talk about them bringing in like a table setter. I don't think you can alongside KPJ because he's not a very good catch and shooter. Like he needs to have the ball in his hands. He's skilled, but he hasn't been productive enough. He's not good enough to demand the entire attention of an offense. And he just is going to have to find a role as a six man somewhere. Like I think that that has been decided at this point. I concur. All right. Let's talk specifically about Jalen Green, Logan, because we've done a lot of talking about the third overall pick in this draft, Evan Mobley, the fourth overall pick, Scotty Barnes, who have been outstanding, and a little bit of talk about the fifth overall pick, Jalen Suggs as well, who's been kind of disappointing. Lots of rookie talk, but we haven't focused a ton on the actual top two guys in this draft. Obviously, very talented guards, but who have gotten off to efficiency-wise, certainly brutal starts to their careers. Let's start with Jalen, because we were just talking Rockets. What have been your thoughts on his performance so far? And then we'll talk about Cade, who also missed the first few games of the year with injury and how he's been. But Jalen first, what have your thoughts been? Well, first, as I just said, tendency to get tunnel vision is not good. Uh, Jalen Green is no playmaker. He is not a ball sharer. Um, He's never seen a shot that he hasn't liked. Uh, To back that up, right now, uh, he's got the 30th most field goals attempted per game for a rookie since 2000. Like, he's... He's chucking up shots. And again, most of these other rookies that come into the league that have these volume of shots are number one guys. Jalen Green isn't the number one guy on his own team. It's KPJ, and he's still hucking those shots up. So props, Jalen. That being said, though, I still believe in the kid. This kid is going to be... He's raw right now. This kid's going to be a beast. Bag is deep. The hezzy move is filthy. He can shake guys. The step back is crazy. The change of pace is elite. There is one thing that I've noticed that I think Jalen needs to work on, and that's he dribbles to open space a lot, Carson, but it's kind of purposeless sometimes. And what I mean by that is he'll get a screen, he'll get into the lane, and it's like he hesitates to pull up. And it's like if you have a standing open jump shot, go ahead and take that, Jalen. That's, that's what you're working for. Or I need you to be working to wait for your role man to cut to the paint. You know what I mean? Like there's kind of just a – he just doesn't know what he's doing sometimes I, where he's just like indecisive. And if, like, that's going to be your game, Jalen, when you get that sliver of space, take that shot. Because that's that's kind of your game. But he's also, dude, the thing that's also blown me away, man, is, like, how explosive he is, too. Like, I didn't realize this coming into the draft. Like, I saw some G League highlights of him catching oops, of him jamming sometimes. When this kid has some paint open, like, he is going to he, – he's got, he's got wings, man. The kid can fly. Like, he has got some bounce on him. And I think part of that, why we've also seen him settle for a lot of these pull-up jumpers, I know that's kind of his bread and butter. There's not a whole lot of space out there on the floor. It's not like guys are afraid of the catching shooters here in Houston. Defenses can kind of collapse and force him to put up some tough shots. Um, but I also like him off ball. Like, I think if we had him alongside another primary creator, I think he can thrive. Kid's a smart cutter. Um, relocating, he's not really a... He doesn't really move a whole lot off-ball, catch-and-shoot-wise. He's still a pretty good catch-and-shooter, but the cutting is promising. And honestly, though, man, I just think that, I don't know, man, he's one of those hot-start guys. Like, he dropped 30 on Boston, 24 on L.A., 23 on Detroit. Like, when he gets going, man, he can catch fire. He can get hot, and he can just score in buckets and bundles. 
Um, I just kind of want him to show he has a willingness to share the ball a little more. That's kind of my only criticism. I know there's not a whole lot of incentive in Houston. There's not a whole lot of a whole lot of other high impact guys. I just want him to share the ball a little more. But I have faith in the kid coming along. Like he's he's a special guard, and when the shots fall in, there's not a whole lot of guys that are better off the dribble than him. Yeah. So. I thought that Jalen was the best perimeter scoring prospect that I can really say I've had a competent look at, which is basically the last half decade or whatever, and I don't really think that's changed. I mean, yes, it can be chaotic, it can be disorganized, it's hot and cold, it's frustrating sometimes, but I just don't care. He's 15 games into his rookie year, and like this is just what we see with these dudes. They need to feel it out. They need to get that sense of the game at the next level. And by the way, he's in a situation where there is no direction. He's putting up 14 a game on 36% from the field, 27% from deep. You hear that and okay, it sounds pretty ugly, but you talk about just all the different skills that he has. We talked about this a ton in the pre-draft process, but I said, I don't know how he isn't at least Zach Levine. Like, that blend of shot creation off the dribble, pure shot making, explosive athleticism, you just don't see it. And he has the change in pace as well. He does have some of that presence out of the pick and roll. He can make some of those basic reads and I think will continue to develop there. It's just his shot's been inconsistent. He's three of 19 on step back threes. Not often you see a rookie take 19 step back threes this early, which I think tells you he can create that shot regularly as we saw in the G League, as we've seen here. I think he will certainly be able to get to the rim more, finish regularly. I mean, he is phenomenal around there sometimes when he gets the chance. And he just has like every tool you could want for a scorer in 15 games of struggling to make shots doesn't change that. I think he's a guy who towards the end of this year will go on a tear. Next year will come out, will be a different player. The year after that, his playmaking will be better. We'll see him score more efficiently. We'll see him fit in better to like a team system. It's just going to be a constant progression with him, but all of the tools are there. And again, this hasn't changed that. He just hasn't produced, but who cares? He's on the worst team in the league and he's a rookie. Yeah, and you talk about the step back. It's it's one of the best I've ever seen, bruh. Like he just like the distance that he can cover, it's like Harden like almost, man. It's it's stupid. Uh it's a special shot creation uh He's got a special shot creation game off the bounce for sure. I do think he'd benefit, man. I just want him to have like a, I guess a bigger role man presence. Like, and what I mean by that is I just wish he had a better, just a better big man he could count on. I don't mean Christian Wood isn't that guy, bro. I'm just talking about he spends a lot of time with Sengun on the floor. There's a lot of time where Daniel Tice is getting minutes. I don't know. Like, I just want... I want him to have another. I want him to just have better teammates where he can actually spread the ball and play team basketball, because I just think that is part of the factor and why he is so selfish. There's kind of a mentality of I'm the best shooter on the team, I'm the best scorer here. Why should I pass the ball? I just wish the situation was a little better so I could competently, you know, value see him in a winning situation or what could be a winning situation so I could judge him because I don't know. I think once all that happens, he is going to be a more efficient shooter because he's not going to be taking all these dumb shots a game. They're, the floor is going to be opened up. It's going to take a minute, but I just I want to see him in a better situation before I can fully tell if he plays winning basketball because I do think there's a world, Carson. Tell me if you think I'm crazy or not on this. 
I think there's a world where maybe he's a little too ISO heavy, wants to get off his own shot too many times. Like, I think he can be that high engine, but I also think there's a world where he can just, where that tunnel vision is too big of an issue, if you get what I'm saying. I suppose there's a world, but like I said, he's 15 years in his NBA career, and I do think that he showed progress as a playmaker in the G League. I do think he's had some moments there, and he's a scorer. Like, when these dudes come into the league, they are scorers. They learn to become playmakers. They learn to fit into the flow of things. They learn to play off ball more, and he has already shown some of the impressive traits there. So, I still have the utmost faith in him. I mean, we're not going to see him in a winning situation for a while because the Rockets are really far away. But I just don't think that's what you evaluate a guy based on at this point in his career. I mean, there are certain dudes where those traits pop immediately and it's they do all the little things off the bat. Jalen Green is not going to be a guy like that, though. I mean, he is going to be carried by his talent and there is a whole lot of talent to carry him and I still absolutely believe in that. Cade, again, got off to a... Really rough start. Just had his best game ever against the Kings. Had 25-8-8, eight and eight, I believe it was. So how do you feel about what you've seen from him? Cade's going to be the GOAT, man. I mean, I mean that facetiously, obviously, but, like, the... Cade's the best, like... He's got the best vision I think I've ever seen out of a rookie, a rookie guard. Uh, it's crazy, man. The way that he is... And not even just vision, like, the willingness and... He wants to share the ball. And I don't mean that in the sense that he's playing Rubio-type ball where he's moving it. When Cade drives to the rack, his first instinct almost isn't even to put the layup. It's like, all right, man, who can I hit out of the wings? Who can I hit at the top of the key? He is always searching for guys to hit. His ability to get into the lane is second to none. It is so easy for him to drive and get to the rack because of how tall he is, the space he can cover with two dribbles. He gets to the rack with ease. He collapses guys because they know if they don't, he's going to get an easy lay. And then from then on, he is looking for shooters. And I mean, Detroit's an interesting situation because it's not like they have a whole lot of really good catching shooters anyway, but he's still hitting them. Isaiah Stewart's hitting some threes. Killian Hayes, Sadiq Bay. Cade's going to be a star. I mean, I don't think we ever doubted that for a moment, but now that we're seeing it, like, Cade is going to be one of the best playmakers in the NBA. He is, he's special in that way. And, like, I know we thought that beforehand, but he just his ability to pass out of a layup and pass out of shots is one of the best I've ever seen. And uh, there's just a certain ease that comes to the game with Cade, man. It looks so effortless. And his shot has come along. Cade started his professional NBA career shooting 1 of 21 from deep. And I believe he's shooting 15 of 37 in the last five games from behind the arc. That's over 40%. If Cade has a three-point shot, I mean, he might be the most talented rookie we've ever seen. If Cade has a three-point shot, I mean, that's a foundation of his game. He's going to be an amazing shooter. He's an amazing shooter in college. Like, he's an amazing prospect. I said he was the best overall lead guard prospect, believe it or not, that I had ever competently evaluated. That's how crazy this draft was. That's what I said. And I guess that that's really just the point here. I mean, yeah, these dudes aren't playing as well as maybe I expected them to immediately. I thought they were going to be two of like the most skilled scoring guards that we've seen early. I thought Cade could put up 18 to 20 a night. I thought Jalen could put up 18 a night. They haven't done that yet. And like you look at the same thing I said with Jalen. For Cade, it's 13 a night on 35% from the field, 28% from deep. But you mentioned the pure shooting over his last five. It's 16, five, and four on 44% from the field, 40% from deep. 
I just think all the ingredients are very clearly there. I mean, the pull-up jump shooting is everything we expected. Very confident there. Good off the catch, which is just fantastic for his overall malleability. He's had some really nice physical drives. I mean, obviously a 6'8 dude who changes pace well. That's a promising skill set, but he's also been willing to really attack people there. I mean, he's comfortable with the floaters. Like, he's just got to make shots. That's what it comes down to. And I think you're right. Compared to Jalen, it's not even as much an adjustment period of understanding how to play the game of basketball. Kate has that. I wouldn't say he's the best vision of any rookie I've ever seen. I mean, Luka was something else. Trey was really impressive. LaMelo last year was something else. Ja was something else. I would put all those guys above Cade, but he does have very clearly point guard instincts. And as I think was also kind of obvious, he's a better playmaker than the numbers would have told you at Oklahoma State because of how teams were able to defend him and because of the personnel around him. So I just don't see what weakness has been exposed in his game or really Jalen Green's. Like they're super young. Again, maybe they haven't been quite up to expectations, but they're going to be special. I think they're both future All-NBA guards. I think they're both going to be among the best in the league at what they do. And yeah, I think Evan Mobley is the best of the bunch, just like I did before. But I think these dudes are going to be insane as well, and that has not wavered. So in case you were wondering our thoughts after statistically slow starts from those guys, I am not worried. Logan, you're pretty much not worried either. All right. Let's address now the question that was on the thumbnail of this video if you're watching live on YouTube, and this is something that was presented to me by the third member of NerdSesh, who obviously is not on the pod here with us, but does video and written content, Carvel Teft, texted me today and said, Draymond's an all-star, and I said, that's pretty interesting, so I figured, hey, we might as well rip that and discuss it today, so now I will ask the question to you, is Draymond an all-star this year? How is he not? I don't like I don't get how Draymond I think it's a harder case to say that Draymond isn't an all-star. And like the case I'll throw back to is two years ago, you know, like when Bam Adebayo broke onto the scene and was averaging 15 points a game. If you were judging something as arbitrary as like averages per game, it's like just a dumb way to do it. It's like, oh yeah, man, Malcolm Brogdon should be an all-star because he's putting up 22 a night. Who cares? Draymond is the second most important player on the best team in basketball and the most important defensive piece on the best team in basketball. I don't care that he's putting up 8-8-7. Eight, eight, and seven. And yeah, that's seven assists. It's what Draymond's always done. He's got the best passing vision out of a wing, I think, maybe I've ever seen. Like, is he the best passing wing ever, bro? I don't know if I'd call him a wing. I don't know what I'd call Draymond, but... Outside, of, obviously, like LeBron, but you know, like, best passing big outside of, like, Jokic. Well, this is what's tough. <laughs> I mean, he is certainly among the best ever. Like, if you're talking about, you can't even put it in the height category because he's 6'5". But <laughs> as far as, like, fours, I mean, yeah, obviously he's among the best of all time. Wings, you have Larry and LeBron, of course. Biggs, Jokic, I think, is in a different class. But Draymond is a maestro, of course. Yeah, and I mean, what, they're the number one, uh, they're number one defense still. Number, what are they, number two or, yeah, number two offense in basketball. Draymond is, again, the second most important piece to that. So, I don't know, man. And I take a look at the, like, how do they do it? Do they go, what, three front court, and then do they do anything for the bench? Yeah, so you have two back court, three front court, and then two wild cards for the bench. I mean, like, I, I don't know who you're going to put up. Obviously, Jokic has got a spot. Obviously, AD is going to wiggle his way in there. 
Um, like, I don't know if LeBron's going to make it because I don't know if he's going to be healthy enough to earn a spot. You got guys like like Cat, but he's not really balling. Like, I don't know. I don't know how you can justify putting all those guys above Draymond when, like, if the Warriors stay as a top three seed out West, I think it's a no-brainer. And again, he's the best defensive player in basketball. How the hell are you going to leave that guy out? So let me give the actual roster breakdown here, okay? Because I wanted to give this some thought. So we're looking at last year's team. Who is not going to make it from that group out West? Well, I don't think Zion's going to make it. I don't think he's going to play enough games. Kawhi is totally out of the picture. So there are two spots freed up for you. Now, are there people who were not on last year's team that are making a better case than Draymond this year? Well, John Morant, absolutely. Lock it in. Cat, yes, has maybe been underwhelming, but I still actually do think that a healthy Cat is a better basketball player than Draymond Green. I mean, I'm a huge Cat guy. I've been very forthcoming about that, but I just think he hasn't had, sure, the volume of opportunity as far as touches that you would want to see. His team hasn't won a lot. He is also giving you 23-10-3 on 46% from deep and is just such a weapon there. But okay, even if we give those two spots, then I think there is one front court spot that is up for grabs. Maybe you can throw Cat into this same mix. That's fine. I love Cat. Okay, I'm going to give him appreciation even if this isn't his best year because he's in a rough situation. I think if you are doing a Rudy Gobert versus Draymond comparison, and Rudy was an all-star last year, you got to go Draymond. Like you said that you think he's the best defensive player on the planet. I think that these are the two best defensive players on the planet. And Draymond's impact offensively is on a completely different level, dude. I mean, he is the conductor. Of course, Steph is the best player, without a doubt. But Draymond runs the offense, and he's been efficient scoring the basketball for the first time in what feels like forever, 56% from the field, 40% from deep, does it in so many different roles as that primary initiator, bringing the ball up the court, your point guard basically facilitating out of the high post, DHOs, pushing it in transition. We haven't seen him actually used a ton off the short roll this year, but we know how insane he can be in that role, and when he does do that, he's exceptional. And again, I mean, he is the general of a top three offense in basketball, and then defensively is holding opponents to 40% shooting and is both the best rim protector and the best perimeter defender on the best defense in basketball. So this is the Draymond Green experience, man. You have two years where the teams don't win at a championship level and people forget. I mean, especially two years ago when not only were they not winning at a championship level, they weren't winning, and it was, oh boy, ugly Draymond pull-ups, and you don't feel the impact of everything he does, but the dude is a basketball genius. I mean, he is clearly one of the most impact impactful players on winning of this generation. At his peak, when he was also scoring efficiently 15 a night, I mean, he was a borderline top 10 player in basketball. I have been adamant in saying I thought he was clearly better and more important than Klay Thompson on that 2016 finals team. And that's just who he is. Even if he's not quite scoring at that level, he's playing within himself, he's scoring efficiently, and he is doing everything at a really high level for the best team in basketball right now that does not have another star level player beyond him and Steph. So I think he has to be, dude. Like, there are guards you could give love to. Book made it last year as an alternate for AD. I don't think Book has a stronger case 
than Draymond right now. I mean, he just has not played his best basketball. And then it's like SGA, no chance, dude. Just hasn't been good enough, in my opinion. Draymond is impacting winning at the highest level on both ends in so many different ways. I am very inclined to reward that. I believe there's a reason that was rewarded in his prime. That should be rewarded again. He does his job as well as anybody on the planet, and it is a joy to watch that actually result in the kind of winning that it should. He is one of the ultimate ceiling raisers in the sport, and I just love the guy. He's one of my favorite basketball players to watch ever, and I think he has to be an all-star right now. I mean, he's still on the fringes of the conversation because there are so many insane players just talent-wise, offensive production-wise in the West, but I think he has to be there right now. All right. One of the guys who has fallen out of that conversation by not playing basketball is Zion Williamson. And still not back on the court, has just been cleared for contact drills, some one-on-one work, which means he's probably still a few weeks away. I mean, that's progress, sure, but it's not a great indication. But Logan, we're asking this question because your answer to this question, unprompted, I mean, you just brought this up yesterday, I thought was very interesting. So I'll just ask this, and then I'll let you give your spiel, and then I'll respond. But the question is, does Zion really make the Pelicans, who have been 2-13, and 13, I mean, atrocious this season, does he really make them better? So I'll get, I'll get this out of the way. Obviously, Zion Williamson makes them marginally better, right? Zion was super efficient. He's always been super efficient. He gets to the rack with ease. Like, I'm not saying that any of that fundamentally changes. And we saw Zion being utilized as a playmaker at the back half of last season in a way that we hadn't before. And he's going to collapse defenses at a high level. He's going to open up shots for other guys. He makes them marginally better. My thing is, I just think the Pelicans suck too bad. I guess, like, I the Pelicans are horrible. They have one of the shortest benches in the NBA. Like, I like Herb Jones and Trey Murphy off the bench. I don't really like anybody else. And I just don't think that there's going to be enough stuff going on off ball for this to really matter. None of these guys like going anywhere. There's no flow to this offense. It's Brandon Ingram and Devontae Graham getting, you know, pick and rolls at the uh, top of the key. I. Uh, Maybe Valanciunas being in here makes this a little bit of different dynamic because you have a floor spacer instead of having Steven Adams out there. But it's like, there's no flow to this offense. There's not a whole lot of ball movement. I just think that we're seeing the exact same thing that we saw last year, just with different people. Like, it's going to be the Zion and B.I. show, going at it, taking their turns. Oh, here you get a possession B.I. Oh, here you get a possession Zion. Go ahead. Go drive inside. And then... This has been the worst defensive team in basketball, and Zion does not make that any better. Zion is one of the least defensively engaged basketball players I have ever seen. Him and Brandon Ingram, him and Brandon Ingram again, I have said this, Bill Simmons has said this, a lot of people have said this, they don't work together on the wings because neither of them want to be engaged defensively, and I think that still matters. When they're going to be on the floor together, they're not going to be engaged defensively. So he doesn't make them any better defensively, there's not going to be a whole lot going on off ball. You've got just, yeah, they're good shooters in Devontae Graham and Nikhil Alexander-Walker, but they have been ice cold to start this season. This is not a deep bench. And so, yeah, I mean, Zion is going to come through. Zion is probably going to average 20 to 25 on stupid efficiency, like 55 to 
and he's going to get four assists a night. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he brings them what he always brought them. But they're not going to be that much better. I still think this is going to be the second-worst team out West. I like the Spurs more because there's at least some sort of flow. There's an identity there. There are guys who are defensively engaged. I don't really think anything changes, Carson. You think the Oklahoma City Thunder are better than the Pelicans with Zion Williamson? I think the Oklahoma City Thunder are going to be more engaged. That's not what I asked. Do I think they're better from a talent standpoint? Hell no. I don't think the Thunder are more talented. That's not what I'm asking either. I'm asking are they going to win a higher percentage of their games than the Pelicans when Zion is healthy? It's tough because obviously the Pelicans have a whole lot more of offensive creation here because you have Valanchunas, who is instant offense on the low block, B.I., who is good from the mid-range, maybe third. I'm not going to stretch at that. I still like the Spurs more. I think they're worse than the Thunder. Yeah, I'm not going to go that far. But I think they're the third worst team out West. I think their defense drags them down that much because I definitely, I like the offensive trio of Valanchunas, B.I., and Zion on their individual selves because of what they can do by themselves. But I don't think this gels together offensively. I don't think there's ever a flow offensively. And I think this is probably the worst team. I think this is the worst team defense in basketball because of the net negatives you have on the floor in Devontae Graham and in AW. And B.I. and Zion are not going to be engaged. So, look, I don't like the Pelicans, okay? Before the year, I picked them as the 12 seed, and, I mean, without Zion, it has obviously been next-level atrocious, and they're clearly one of the worst teams in basketball as things stand currently. I don't think they're going to be good with Zion, but I do think they're going to be a lot better. I mean, I just think that's almost undeniable. And some people will maybe look at this and say, okay, well, isn't he 300 pounds right now? Like... Can the dude even consistently play productive basketball also coming off of a broken foot? Are those things concerning? Yes. But I think we have to look at the track record with Zion and just his overwhelming physical ability to produce no matter what. When he came in as a rookie, he was coming off of a torn meniscus. He came into the league out of shape to where he was playing 28 minutes a game and they had to send him to the bench so he could get a breather like... It was noticeable that he was not in good enough condition. And he averaged 22.5 a game in those 28 minutes on 62% true shooting. The Pelicans were almost 8 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor. They outscored opponents outright by almost 5 points per 100 possessions. And they had started that year 6-22. and I mean, that was a bad team. They got better as the year went along. But then when Zion played, they were 11-13. and And again, when he was on the floor, they were actually pretty darn good. So... I would say even the track record for him coming off of injuries, out of shape, is as long as he is on the floor, he is changing things for you so significantly because this is a team right now that is starved for consistent offensive creation. It's way too much Nikhil Alexander-Walker. I mean, they didn't even have B.I. for seven games. They were 0-7 in those games. That's worth noting, too. That was hideous. Devontae Graham is just not a reliable lead offensive engine kind of guy. Like, all of that is brutal. But you introduce Zion, and not only are you bringing in an uber-efficient 25-point-per-game scorer, you're bringing in a guy who just slicks the wheels of your offense in every conceivable way. He's a 79th percentile pick-and-roll ball handler last season. I mean, he can run offense for you, and he will attack people coming downhill. You can use him as a roll man. He's an explosive cutter. He's one of the best transition players in basketball. And, I mean, you cannot overstate how much he is going to collapse defenses and just make life easier for the guys around him, give them more space, create better shots for them. So 
I agree with you defensively. I mean, they have major issues. He is not going to fix that. I agree that they have issues as far as offensive direction. Up to this point, it has been unwatchable. And it's not always going to be, hey, they have a super clear identity with Zion. What is going to be true, though, is that Zion is going to be an overwhelming enough talent to where their offense is just going to make significant strides. So I still think with Zion out there, they're a sub-500 team. They're a bottom five team out west. But to compare them to the Oklahoma City Thunder, I just think you can't do that because the Pelicans have sucked without Zion for the last two plus years. It's even worse this season, but we've seen it when he hasn't been out there. And when he is out there, they play as a 500 respectable team. Maybe they're a little bit worse than that this year because I don't like their depth. I mean, trust me, there's a lot I do not like about this Pelicans team, but I also don't want to undersell what a healthy Zion, even if he's out of shape, can do because all that dude needs to do is get by you with a first step and get up into the air. And if he can do that at 285, 290 pounds, I think he can do it at 300. Like he's just that kind of next level freak. As I've said, he waddles around. That dude never looks like a good athlete. And then you see him go into his explosive motion and it's, oh my God, he's the craziest athlete I've ever seen in my entire life. I just think that's still really impactful. I think he's going to walk into 25 a game efficiently as long as he can play 30-something minutes a night. And, uh, I mean, he is by so far their best player. And they need him so desperately. And I just think he's going to help everything offensively. I'd bet him to walk into the buffet line. I'd bet him to walk into Denny's, into IHOP, into Zaxby's. Not only is he going to collapse defenses, he's going to collapse the court with his big ass. Like, I just... Is there a point, bruh? Is there a point where Fat Zion matters? Is You just... I know, I know what an athlete he is, but does it ever matter? Like, is he ever too fat to play? I mean, there will be a point, but it's like, of course he would be better if he were in peak condition, right? But it's like what we saw with Shaq. I mean, Shaq could be 30 to 40 pounds overweight and still clearly a top five player in basketball. Zion is not going to be a top five player in basketball, but he's going to be a top 20 player in basketball or an all-star caliber guy. Yes. Well, I think we at least have to hold him accountable for that. It's like, I am one of the fundamental believers that Shaq could have been the greatest player of all time had he given a shit, had he cared, had he stayed on himself in developing his game and staying in shape. I feel the exact same way about Zion Williamson. Athletes like this do not come around. They're once in a blue moon. They're once in a generation. That's why he was taken number one overall. Is it too much to ask him to get his fat ass in shape? Is it too much to ask him to cut down his weight for the betterment of his body, for the betterment of his team, and to ask him to work on his skills? Like, Carson, I'm just, I'm fed up. And so should you be, Zion. You should close your mouth, bro. Like, dude, I just don't want to see this talent go to waste. I just don't want it to. Because, like you said, he's going to be a top 20 basketball player. He's going to be a top 25 uh, player in the world. But he could be a top five player in the world, and he's holding himself back. Completely fair. Completely agree with all of that. And your dad made a great point in the chat, and something that I have said before, he very well may stay hurt at this weight. That is my biggest concern. It's not about his ability to perform on the court. It's what happens to your knees when you are the most aerial player in basketball, damn near, and you're 6'6", 300 pounds. 
That is a wear and tear that concerned me before he even got into the league. That was one of the reasons I was a Zion skeptic. All of that is fair. Completely agree. There's no reason for him to be out of shape like this. I mean, sure, it was an offseason in which he couldn't be fully active and all that. I get that. At the same time, dudes find a way to stay in shape. I mean, they're NBA players. They have access to the best training in the world, and like, there's no excuse for that. That's all totally fair. My point is, when he is on the court, even if he's not as dominant as he could be, even if the Pelicans still have major issues, he is going to be a Band-Aid. He is going to make this team competitive and respectable again, even if it's not always pretty, even if they suck defensively. I mean, I don't think there's a world in which they make the play-in. I think they're bad, but I do think Zion is going to do a lot, and I don't want to understate how phenomenally impactful he can be on the game. Like, I do really think he's going to walk into 25 a game. That's just the kind of dude that he is. It doesn't make sense, but he was given that kind of ability and, uh, hey, if he wants to squander it, too bad, his choice. But he's still going to be really, really good as long as he's healthy. And he's going to help this team. Let's go now to a team that is in this same tier out west, who you just mentioned. The San Antonio Spurs. I'll be honest. Another team that's not a great watch. I mean, <laughs> when we go under the radar storylines, we talk about some teams that aren't the best, that aren't the prettiest. But, hey, they're out there. They're giving it their best shot. So I will ask you, Logan, the age-old question, it seems, with this generation of Spurs teams is they have had, you know, some middling draft picks, I mean, picking in the late lottery or somewhere else in the teens as those kind of fringe playoff teams that they've been in recent years. Do they have any building block pieces right now that you can look at and say, hey, you know, maybe they're not winning a ton of games, but they have that building block guy going forward? I think there's three guys that you can pencil in here as guys that they can build around for the future. Obviously, DeJounte Murray and what he's done this season, 1988, uh, 1988, shout out, great year, (laughs) 1988 on 46-33 splits for Murray this season. He's a great defender, and honestly, man, if that shot comes along, he is a complete player. they run a lot of pick and roll with him. When he gets into the lane, if he has a pull-up game, if he has a reliable three-point shot at all, the guy is scary. Um, DeJounte is kind of just, I think, the prototypical guy that people are going to point to. Gives a lot of effort, great in transition, great defensive asset. So, obviously, he's been the biggest storyline for San Antonio this season. I still really like Jakob Pertl. The guy puts up 14-10 and 10 and a block per game on 65% from the field. Like, he just... Jakob is just so underrated, man. Like, he he just plays his role to a T. He's a great rim protector. He's got the 19th best defensive differential within six feet among centers. He's a great rebounder. He's got the seventh most contested rebounds in basketball, the most offensive rebounds in basketball per game, the most contested offensive rebounds in basketball per game. He's just a great rebounder. He's a smart ball mover. You will see a lot of possessions for San Antonio where he is setting a screen at the top of the key to start a possession, where they are doing a DHO with him, and he needs to find somebody on the wing to start the possession off. Sets hard screens. He's a, he's a great cutter, 83rd percentile. Like, Jakob's just a good, he's just a good role guy. Like, and I think he's a guy that you can put at your five spot and anchor your defense around. Like, he does the gritty things for your team. Hard-nosed on the glass, plays hard defensive basketball, is pretty mobile, can get out there and defend mid-range shots. Great straight-up rim protector. And, like, He's not a great role man. He's not super explosive, but he's good enough to where I think that you could, you can put him at your five spot and you can play winning basketball because he's not going to do too much. Again, this guy's shooting 65% from the field because he takes shots at the rim and nothing else. 
And then the last guy that I think that this team has a real future with is Devin Vassell. And I was skeptical with the cold shooting streak that he got off to, you know, in his rookie campaign, but he's a really good on-ball defender. Like, the guy's got active hands. He moves his feet well. He just stays in front of guys and stays engaged. But the shooting is what, uh, you know, you're sold on. Carson, you said that you would always take the best shooter in the draft. You really liked Vassell coming out, even though, you know, I know there was a lot of stuff going into the mechanics of his jumper. That's all sorted out. He's putting up 12 a night on 46 and 40 splits. He's just a great shooter. 41% off the catch. And that's the biggest change I think that we've seen. He's not only good off the catch this season, the guy can get into the lane and shoot out of the mid-range now, and you can trust him to go out there and get you a tough bucket. Like, I don't get it, man. Like, when you watch clips of this guy, like, defenders, they don't, like, hedge over and, like, try to stop him. They will give him that mid-range jumper, and he is making you pay. Shooting 42% on pull-ups, 46% out of the mid-range. Like, guys are giving him that shot, and he is making them pay. He's the second-best shot creator on this team. Outside of that... I don't know, man. I, I like Keldon Johnson a lot, but Keldon's janky, dude. Keldon just, if he's not hitting his catch-and-shoot attempts, Keldon's not really a plus. Like, yeah, he's a good on-ball defender, decent cutter. He's got to knock down his threes at a higher clip. I like Lonnie Walker. He's shooting 38 and 31% from the field and from deep right now. He's a 93rd percentile uh, ball handler, but it's like, bro, if you're shooting that horrendously from the field... I don't really know how much faith I can put in you. So I don't know, man. I, the Spurs are not the most fun team to talk about. While we're here, though, I'll give Doug McDermott a shout-out, shooting like 46% from behind the arc. Uh, I'm not capping, right? Oh, wow. That's, yeah, yeah. 46% from behind the arc so far this season. McDermott's been shooting well. Great asset because, damn, they certainly needed shooters last season. Not a wealth of talent here, but I think you have three guys that play winning basketball and that you can build for with the future. Rest of the guys, though, I don't know, man. I think you can let them walk. Maybe Josh Primo's a guy. Not really up here on the roster, but that's for the future. But these three guys, I think, are solid enough to where you can say they're the future of the Spurs. Yeah, we just don't know with Primo. I mean, he's not going to play. He's one of the younger guys in the draft, one of the less established high picks as far as college production, and the Spurs just historically have not played their rookies a whole lot. I mean, we've seen that with all of these guys who you touched on, at least those who began in the Spurs system. Vassell probably played more than most. I mean, he was only getting like 17 minutes a night and wasn't super productive, but Murray did not play that much. And Keldon Johnson, Lonnie Walker, those guys didn't play that much. So that's just kind of the way things go in San Antonio. I like Jakob Pertl a lot. I mean, I think he's very good at what he does. I don't know if I would classify him as a building block piece. And I guess that's maybe where my standard here is going to be a little bit higher than yours. I'm not looking at this question as, that's a guy I would like to have on my basketball team. I'm looking at this as, that is a guy who I have on my basketball team right now, and I feel like I need to keep him. And I actually think he is a fundamental part of my future. Devin Vassell, I like a lot. I wrote about him uh, very early in the year. I thought he was the most interesting thing to look for with the Spurs because he had been impressive in preseason, and I think you touched on it. I mean, my favorite part about his game is the fluidity of the pull-up jump shooting game once he does get into that mid-range. I want that guy on my team, no doubt about that. I mean, he is plug-and-play, 3-and-D with maybe a little something extra as far as that pull-up jump shooting game. I love that. I really think Keldon Johnson is a guy who I want my team. I mean, he just does winning things for a guy this young and will fight on the glass, will make good decisions as a passer, compete on defense, can get downhill. 
And if he hits 36% of his threes, that's a really good player. I think there's only one guy, though, who when I say building block piece is really there in that conversation and who has forced himself into that conversation, and that's DeJounte Murray. And I have always been of the mindset of, hey, the Spurs have several guys who I like. I mean, I've liked Keldon for a while. I've liked Lonnie Walker. I kind of lumped DeJounte in with those guys, even though he progressed last year and even though he got you know his solid enough contract my thought was just he's a little bit weird. You know, what do you do with this guy who isn't going to be a reliable pull-up jump shooter from beyond the arc who seemingly needs to have the ball in his hands a lot? And I just think this year we've seen the progression from him to where I think, yes, there are aspects of his game that you look at and say, okay, maybe it's a little tough to fit him alongside other really good players because he's not going to be a catch and shooter, at least not at this stage. And that makes it tough to play with other dudes. He also needs to be more efficient as a scorer. I mean, his true shooting percentage right now is, I believe, about 51 on the dot. That's not good enough for a volume offensive player. But this is just not the role in which I think he's best served. Like, yeah, he's producing raw stats-wise at a really high level. I mean, 19-8-8, like you said, or 1988, excuse me. That's really impressive. It's also because there's no other reliable high-end creators here. And, like, the volume mid-range stuff from him, it works well enough when there isn't other great offensive talent. He shoots 45% from mid-range. He compensates for the lack of a three-point shot with that. I just don't think if he's in the perfect spot, he has to do as much of that, and he becomes more efficient. And he does bring you significant playmaking value. I mean... Maybe he's not a genius-level playmaker, but he gets downhill. He is fundamentally unselfish, really willing to share the ball, and the kind of guy who I could really see being a guy you look at and say, hey, DeJounte, let's take a little bit off as far as looking to score. Let's look additionally to distribute if he has good teammates alongside him, and I think he would embrace that. And he can still get downhill. He's a really good finisher at the rim, good athlete. I mean, he has some of the floater game. He's a major plus on defense. So... I think if he's in a role where his scoring burden decreases and you just ask him to score 15 a game, but you still kind of give him the keys to your offense and say, hey, you can put pressure on defenses, you can run volume pick and roll, but have that facilitating mindset and he will bust his ass on defense, like, I think you hold on to that guy. And it's not, you know, he's some future superstar and he's 25 and it's taken him a while to get up to this point and he had the torn... ACL and he missed the year with that and again he didn't come out of the draft as this superstar player but he has just gotten better and better and better he does a lot of winning things and I mean maybe that three-point shot does come along at some point like it's not a weapon in his game right now but the mid-range shot is very legitimate and if that comes along I mean that's just a really complete basketball player and even without that I think he's a guy who I want on my team and you got to give him props, dude, because he is really stepping up and is clearly the best player in almost every respect on this Spurs team right now and just keeps getting better. And you just got to love a guy like that. So, I mean, if he's the only building block, then what do you think the Spurs should target in the draft over these next couple years? Do you look to get him, you know, a actually long-term big man who's more impactful offensively? Do you look to just keep getting the best shooter in the draft to surround him with guys who can complement him off ball? Like, I guess, what do you do to build out the roster around DeJounte if he is your building block? Well, to be clear, 
I still think he is a complimentary player. Like, I think he's a top three guy on a really good team. I don't think he's a number one guy on a really good team. So I think for the most part, you're probably going to go best player available. And like, the Spurs have this abundance of wings. I mean, every year it is a wing. Lonnie Walker, Keldon Johnson, Josh Primo, Devin Vassell. No shortage of wings. But I don't know. I mean, they're also really important and... If you get a home run level guy, why would you not take a lead scorer kind? Like, I think that that's something they would love to have a phenomenal lead scorer. Because again, DeJounte is going to need to have the ball in his hands a lot. And if he's going to succeed, it's going to have to be with guys who can work around that and who can be those go-getting scorers. And he's not going to play with Trey Young, right? Like he can't play with another guy who needs to fully dominate the ball. I don't think, although he's a good athlete. I just think he is a point guard, and he's made that very clear. So yeah, take the best player available. I mean, as you would with any great team. Add shooting, add really high-level scoring wings, add you know bigs who can play both ends. And they have pieces who I like. Like I'm not saying, hey, trade everybody but DeJounte. Far from it. I like a lot of these young guys, as we've mentioned. So I don't know if there needs to be a clear plan. I would say go out there, take the best guy available for the most part. If there is a transcendent guard prospect who you feel like does need to run the offense entirely, I'm not going to tell you to pass up on that guy for DeJounte Murray because I don't think DeJounte Murray is an all-star. But I do think he is in that next tier of really good basketball players. And even if it is a little bit weird because of the lack of the consistent outside shot, I think he does so many things well that you just have to reward that. And I mean, you look at the progress, dude. As a rookie, he averaged three a game. Then he averaged eight a game. Then he tore his ACL. Then he averaged 11 game. Then he averaged 16, 7, and 5. And now he's putting up numbers like we touched on and has consistently been a clamp throughout all that time. Doesn't turn the ball over a lot for a dude who has it in his hands as much as he does. You just got to give props to a guy like that. Any final thoughts from you here, Logan, given everything that we've talked about today? No, no final thoughts from Logan. All right, well, it's been a pleasure as always speaking to you guys. Appreciate all of you who watched along live. To those of you listening on the podcast, appreciate you every bit as much. We are going to take... A break from the podcast next week. Probably aren't going to do a show just because family stuff, Thanksgiving and all that. So that's probably not going to happen. We are still going to have a show this Friday. Not a YouTube live stream, but a radio show, which we will then, of course, post as a podcast to all of the platforms, Spotify, Apple, wherever. Should have a very cool guest on for that one, Talking Football. So tune in for that. We'll post about that, obviously, when it is up there. And... We may come out with other content over this stretch. We'll see. There will be that podcast on Friday for sure. And if you want to stay plugged in with what we're doing, as always, check out our website, nerdsesh.com. That's where all of our content lives, written, video, audio. Follow us on social media. Twitter is at nerd underscore sesh. Instagram is at nerd sesh. And TikTok, where Logan and I just sort of record whatever comes to our head recently, little short sports takes. Go ahead and check that out at nerd sesh. And yeah, guys. Going to be weird not doing a show for a week. I mean, obviously, we've been pretty consistently trying to do the three-a-week thing, but hey, hopefully you guys don't mind a little bit of a break from us yapping. And again, who knows what other non-podcast content might come through over that time. So appreciate you guys as always. And with that, I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was Nerds. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host 
host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.